Are we ready? Yes. That was not, that was not that was not the strong mandate I had there. Uh, my name is Carsten Sorensen. Uh, I work in the Department of Management in the Information Systems and Innovation Group, and uh, I'm the chair of this session. And it's a great pleasure for me now to be on air. Here you go. It's a great pleasure for me to facilitate this uh, uh, this uh, presentation and subsequent discussion. Um, our honoured guest tonight is. Uh, Jim Snapp, who is co-CEO of uh, one of the few left in Europe, large IT companies in Europe. And uh, as a European, um, we should be worried that there are not more of these. Uh, and we should discuss uh, how to solve this problem, if it is indeed solvable, or indeed what else we can do. And I think that's some of the issues that uh, Jim will talk about today. Uh, by pure, uh, pure coincidence, he is also a native Dane. Uh, but we will refrain uh, from speaking Danish. Uh, are there any other Danes in the room? Just to be on the set. There's two more. There you go. Welcome. Uh, the talk will be half an hour. And given the proximity of uh, Denmark to Germany and given that uh, Jim is the CEO of a German company, I, I anticipate that to be pretty much on the spot. That it will not be uh, a lot more than that. And then we'll have time for uh, hopefully a frank and open discussion. Um, we will not have any fire drill while uh, this proceeds, so if the alarm goes on, uh, head for the doors with the green man on. Uh, what else? I have a list of things I need to say. Yes, one more thing. This is a social science institution, which means that people tend to uh, not ask questions, but to give long essays. Uh, I have been asked on behalf of our director to recommend you to ask questions rather than trying to compete with Jim's efforts of giving your own talk. <laughs> now, whether you follow that advice or not, I am not in control of, but this was just a, a mild recommendation. That our director is currently with the Prime Minister in India, so I'm his uh, replacement here to, to give you that piece of advice. And we're going to have the presentation, then discussion. So without any further ado... Jim, will you take the floor? Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's indeed a, an honor for me to be here. I always felt that um, life is a lifelong learning, and to be back here is great for me. I am uh, the co-CEO of SAP. Um, co-CEO means that, um, at least I try to convince my wife that it means that I have a half-time job as a CEO. That's very hard to get but I have one of the two jobs in the world where that's possible. Um, this summer, or last summer, 2012, I was invited to join the Olympic opening ceremony. Were anyone of you here? Did you see it live or did you see it on television? So you know what I'm talking about, um, just to remind you. Um, first of all, congratulations, uh, London for an extraordinary event. Um, secondly, the opening ceremony made me think as a European and as a business leader. You will recall that this uh, was a journey of development in Britain, uh, starting with the rural era. Uh, you saw peasants uh, working hard and creating value in the economy of the rural Britain. And then there was this massive transformation into a next phase, the industrialization and this 
transformation was so uh, strong built at that ceremony. And chimneys came up, and you saw the industrial age just right there, massive change. And you saw, again, um, industrial workers now working really hard. They created the five rings, and it was uh, clearly a value creation um, in a new era. And then came the digital era. So again, a radical shift, and uh, for a couple of hours, we had one big party. And that made me reflect as a European. It made me reflect on where, where did the value creation go? It made me reflect on this digital era of opportunity, which suddenly became a big MP3 party in Europe. It made me concerned about the future of Europe. And I want to talk about that. Um, I want to talk about the digital era that I believe we have already started and the implications that we'll have in this world, uh, the challenges that we face in Europe, but also the opportunities that it may give us, and not just in Europe, but, but globally in all industries. If you take a look at some of the facts um, and you look at it from the dark side, we do have some challenging situations in, in Europe. From a growth perspective, we do not currently see a lot of growth opportunities in Europe. Um, we are, of course, comparing ourselves with the rapid growth in China. It's interesting how China is discussing whether it's now 8 or 10 percent. It's actually irrelevant uh, from a European perspective uh, because it's still pretty high growth opportunity. Even the U.S., um, I don't know if it's in the DNA of the Americans just to be more optimistic. I think from a debt crisis point of view, they have more or less the same situation as in Europe, yet they are more optimistic and often find growth opportunities earlier than Europe. And if you look at how the growth over the next five years, the contribution uh, will come from various parts of the world, there is a shift of world economy that is pretty radical. At the same time, of course, I'm very interested in productivity in Europe. And from a productivity point of view, um, it is very clear that if we just compare price per labor, it is extremely difficult for Europe to compete. In our industry, uh, we can get five extremely well-educated people in India uh, that are at least as good as what we can in Europe for the same price as one. Um, that is the competitive situation that we have from a, a skill, a labor cost point of view. And if you just use that as a metric, even uh, being um, uh, very containing on the uh, cost development in, on labor is not going to help. We saw this shift because of these uh, labor costs. The labor cost arbitrage happened first from northern Europe to southern Europe, and then it all went to either India or China, manufacturing in China, and, of course, services into India. And of, I believe the next wave will come where Africa becomes a source of next uh, labor arbitrage. I do not believe that we can compete when we talk about price per hour. And I don't think that labor arbitrage is the right way of solving the problem. It's a short-term opportunity. Now, you add to that the demographic challenge that we have, that when I grow old, and I'm sure there's many years until that happens, um, there will be a situation in Europe where we have a very low population um, of young people who can be the um, opportunity for growth and, 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 and creation of value in, in Europe. In fact, if you compare the numbers there, I spend a lot of time in, in India. There's more, more than 500 million 
people in India below 25. Think about that. So if you combine all of these things, you will see that, at least from a geographical point of view, Europe is facing a potential radical challenge. Um, now you add one very interesting fact of today is that we have unemployment among young, well-educated people. It doesn't make sense. And we need to fix that problem very rapidly. So that's the dark side of the, of the conversation. When I look at those numbers, I get worried. And I know that we will have to find solutions uh, pretty radically and very fast. Now, I am a Dane, and maybe that's why I'm also optimistic. Um, you have to be, when you're in a country with 5 million people, that's what they call mid-sized cities in China, uh, you have to be pretty optimistic if you believe that you can make a difference in the world. And when I look at it from a positive uh, point of view, clearly uh, we are in a situation where the digitalization that is happening in all industries is a massive opportunity for increased productivity as well as increased innovation and growth. I do not believe that the euro concern is about a euro crisis conversation. This is about where's the innovation? This is about where's the productivity? This is about the future of our opportunities for next generations to create new value through the digitization that is possible. This is not about the price of an hour of labor. It is about the value of an hour spent if you add technology to the equation. And I am convinced that the opportunity to create value per hour spent is radically bigger than the labor cost arbitrage that we've seen happening in the world so far. And that's what I'd like to talk about because SAP is a technology company. We do this for a living, but my hypothesis is one that goes beyond our company and our industry. We are a company of 41 years in the IT industry. We are a business software company, a market leader in the world, and over the last three years, we kind of reinvented ourselves. We have high growth rates again. We are looking at doubling the company in a five-year period, and, and all of that has come because we have focused everything we had on innovation in new technologies. And clearly, if you look at Europe today, it is a dilemma that on one side we have unemployment among young, intelligent people, yet in the IT industry we cannot find enough people for the empty seats that we have for employment. And therefore, some of these jobs are moving outside this region. We have a situation in Spain with 54% unemployment among young people, and yet we do not find enough IT talents, and we need to fix that. So, where does that leave us? I believe that technology, of course, as an IC, IC, I, I, um, um, the IT industry itself is a growth opportunity. But my hypothesis today is far beyond the IT industry. With the digitization, the change that can happen in all industries is massive. And I'll give you a couple of examples because we work with many of these. First of all, Let's look at the importance of the technology industry itself. If you look at the development over the last 10 years, you take the top 10 market cap companies in the world. Uh, the share that was IT went from 21% to more than 43%. And you know all the names. In the last five years alone, huge market cap companies have been created. All of them have been technology-oriented because it's the only industry where you can create it fast enough. 
All of them, by the way, have been American. And all of them have been consumer-oriented in the technology approach. You look at the innovation. China was a place where it was hard to protect patents. That has completely changed. China is now producing more patents than anyone else. In fact, in areas where you, it doesn't make sense anymore, it's the amount of patents that almost make it uh, impossible to operate in China. Um, and so this has reversed completely, and there's a strong correlation between growth rates and the willingness to spend time on innovation to create growth for countries. Again, there, Europe is far behind. 2% growth in patents over that, that period, 2007 to 11. It is very, very limited compared to the patent situation in the world. Now, why is this so important? Because technology matters beyond the technology industry itself. We all know the story of the music industry. Carsten wrote a thesis on this as well, or, or articles on this as well. It's a fascinating story of three technologies that, when they come together, create a massive change. It is the combination of a file format, the digitization of the product itself with MP3. Now, what was the reaction of the music industry when MP3 came along? Nearly nothing. Interesting. Then came Napster. Napster is the network. So now you have a digital product with access to people everywhere. Napster was the illegal way of a network. It was the first peer-to-peer -peer network that really created enormous distribution of music. And what was the reaction of the music industry? Legal action. And educate the user what's legal and what's not. I tell you from my own experience, if you're ever in a meeting where the conclusion is you need to educate your customers more, you are in the wrong meeting. <laughs> And only when the third technology came along, the, um, the iPod and the iTunes, which was the legal way and the consumption on the mobile device. So you have three technologies, the data file itself, the digitization of the product, the distribution through the network, and the mobile device to consume in a legal way. That changed the entire industry. You look at the industry today. I would claim that with these technologies coming together, you have a perfect opportunity for massive value creation for the consumer. I, as a person, I love music. I don't spend many hours in my day without somehow being interacting with music. Since I am a user of Spotify, I have never consumed so much new music in my life. Why? Because I have great friends with great music taste. And they inspire me for new things. So, you have a situation where the customer is having much more value, and at the same time, the costs of the supply chain has gone down by 99%. Which industry would not like to have an opportunity for massive value creation at the customer, and at the same time, a radical reduction of the supply chain costs? That is what happens with digitization. Now, you may think, well, that's the music industry. And of course, it happens in music because the product is digital. Well, banking products are digital. We are creating solutions in South Africa where we're bringing banking to the unbanked, to the mobile devices. There are no big, expensive facilities for the bank. It's in the pocket of people. So you suddenly have access to billions of people with new technology. The costs are already taken, and you get a marginal cost of zero 
when you add the long tail, this is the opportunity for including the long tail, the bottom part of the pyramid, in all industries. Healthcare. The digitization in healthcare is the DNA of a patient. In cancer treatment, today, we're able to compare the cancer DNA with the healthy DNA of a patient, find the exact mutation, go on structured search to find which medicine has the impact of that mutation with the highest probability. And with that, you individualize the treatment. Again, more value to the customer, in this case, the patient, at significantly lower cost because you don't need to go through six years of experimenting with various kinds of chemotherapy until you find something that might work or the patient no longer has a life. Or what about mining? We work with 25 different industries in the world. One of them is mining. We cover everything from raw materials all the way to the end consumer. Now, mining today looks like this. This is uh, Rio Tinto in Perth. You think mining is a very heavy, lifting, you know, work-intensive industry. Well, the workers shifted from the trucks, the heavy-lifting equipment. They are now unmanned. They are being operated by an operation center that makes NASA look like a kindergarten. And the skill to make all of this run is in a large data center that operates a completely automated mining all the way from the mine to the ship. Now, if you don't believe that digitization will happen in all industries, you have to look at that example. You'll find some of it on YouTube, and you will realize that this is happening everywhere. Now, with that, the assumption is that you can create massively more value at significantly lower cost, which is the next wave of productivity and innovation that is necessary. This is no longer about labor arbitrage, about the price for an hour. It is about the value of creation with one-hour effort. And it creates a complete new set of opportunities and challenges because my main hypothesis is we do not have the skills. We have not prepared ourselves for the digital era. And as you saw with the rule phase going into the industrial phase, there was a radical shift of skills needed. Well, I'm claiming that the same radical shift of skill is needed to take full advantage of the digital era. I am in the board of a, a um, very important um, um, hi-fi company in Denmark, Bang & Olufsen, some of you may know. Bang & Olufsen is, uh, has perfected design of music and television, and their skill is an analog um, mechanical skill. Well, and guess what? In their future product, mechanical analog doesn't exist. It's all digital. So their new skills that they're going out to find in the market are digital skills that they do not have today. And this will happen in all industries. This is our one of two big, big problems in Europe, the digital skill. We are facing a situation where we cannot find jobs. In Germany alone, there's an estimated gap of IT people of 40,000. Um, you broaden that to Europe in 2020. We estimate more than 300,000 jobs are unmanned with the current uh, education that we have. And we need to solve that. Um, I compare that to um, skills in India and China um, very, very aggressive development. I'm claiming it's digital skills, it's mathematical skills, it's engineering skills, 
there will be a lot of jobs going in that direction, and we need to find ways to accelerate the development of those skills. We have taken an initiative at SAP together with other companies in, in the so-called Industry 4.0, which is kind of the industry, the manufacturing world that's digitized. There's a lot of skills around embedded software, around, um, of course, software in general, um, um, around digitization of value creation in products that are missing. We have created a so-called um, Academy Cube, which is the idea of an e-learning platform for unemployed young people in Europe to educate them on new digital skills. One way to accelerate um, this gap problem um, or to, to solve this gap problem. We've experimented even with new ways of learning, with e-learning, of course. Um, in, in memory computing technology, a new class of database technology is extremely well suited for e-learning. We have put a class together with the Hassel Plattner Institute in Berlin. In one class, like this, 10,000 people signed up from around the world. Uh, the third largest country was Ukraine. And two and a half thousand people graduated on that training class. Imagine the opportunity we have to create new skills with new types of means, uh, new types of technology. So even there, the digitization will happen in the education itself. This is one problem that we need to look at. And of course, from a competitive point of view, we need to make sure that we get those skills not just because IT is a fast-growing industry, but because IT will have an impact in all industries. The second problem is what I call the power of small. I represent a big company. The last three years, we've added 20,000 people to our company. Two-thirds of that through acquisition, which is not growing seats in employment, and one-third through organic uh, growth. Apple is one of the great examples of how innovation and digitization has led to a huge value creation, yet only 40,000 jobs were created in the U.S., most of them in retail, not highly skilled retail tasks. So my claim is that even if I'm proud of working with a large company, the problem of un unemployment, the problem of finding innovation for growth is not going to happen by the big companies. I believe it happens by the small companies. I believe that it is time not, for, not just for politics, but also for large companies to understand and seize the opportunity of helping the small grow big faster. It sounds weird because it's my future competitors. Yet at the same time, I know that the large institutions like SAP, like everyone else who is successful, success is the biggest limitation for innovation. And in our industry, the innovator always comes from below. So rather than trying to fight the small, we want to embrace the small. We want to enable them through technology and platforms to do faster identification of great ideas, support for entrepreneurship, and the real support they need is how do you scale, and give them global access to technology. I believe we live in a world where technology platforms is a huge opportunity to enable small companies to have global reach instantly, to enable small companies to add value on top of things that already exist and not trying to invent the same thing again.
And with this approach, large companies can help small companies accelerate their growth. Um, 80, more than 80% of the new jobs created the last 10 years in Europe have been from SMEs. There's more than 23 million SMEs in Europe. I went to China, talked to um, China Telecom about how do we bring solutions to the small companies. I said in a very um, optimistic point of view, I leaned over the table and said, I believe there's a million companies in China who could benefit from our software to run their business better. The lady looks at me, then at her team, and says, why are you saying one million? We think there's 14 million. <laughs> why is there such a big difference? And I said, well, let's start with one million, and then we can always expand from there. What this is all about is not creating jobs, but enabling people to create their own job. In a digital era, where because of the digitalization, you can reach markets instantly, your innovation is available instantly, and you have an opportunity to accelerate growth like we've never, ever seen before in a traditional market. We have done the following at SAP to believe in this and to accelerate this, like we did on the skills side. We don't think that large companies and leaders of today can sit around and wait for politicians to help fix it. We're educating 100,000 unemployed people in Europe. And here, we have given our platform, we have a breakthrough technology called HANA, an in-memory-based technology that is thousands of times faster than traditional database technology. We are providing this platform for small and medium-sized companies to innovate on top as a platform. We are putting venture capital money in place so that they can have a risk-taking uh, opportunity. And we are helping them with mentorship from large companies to help them scale their business. I believe this is a huge topic, not just for Europe, but for the world. And one of the most inspiring people I worked with is Professor Yunus in, uh, in Bangladesh, who is providing microfinancing to women to create jobs around them, and with that, solving the unemployment problem, because large companies will not be able to do that themselves. We should cooperate, co-innovate at large scale. So let me come to an end before we go into the discussion. Um, next time there's Olympics is um, going to be in Rio. And after that, it's still undecided. One of the um, cities that have applied is Madrid. And it's quite interesting with the current economical situation that we have in Spain. In eight years from now, my kids will be the age of many of you. They will be looking at, what am I going to do as a profession? And I hope that at that time, we've found enough digital opportunity to radically change most industries, not just in Europe, but in the world. Because with seven billion people moving to nine, we need to find radically better ways to manage the scarce resources we have. And the digitization of industries is the opportunity to do that. I don't know if this is a sun going up or a sun going down. I hope it's a sun going up also in Europe. Thank you very much.
much. Uh, before we go on to questions, I just want to remind you that this may or may not be recorded and uh, transmitted on the Internet. So uh, you're all liable to the various laws of your own home country, and at least for this country. So, um, uh, and also, whatever you say may be recorded and used against you in a later, in a later <laughs> date and time. Um, yeah? Who wants to start? We like some challenges. Up there. There's some, and there are microphones on the way whenever you pull up your hand. Am, am I allowed to ask two questions? Uh, if you start by announcing who you are. Great. Uh, I'm John Kaminer. I am a student in the management, one of the management programs here. Um, and I, I also work for Accenture, so I've been implementing SAP for a few years. So I have, I have two questions. One, you mentioned uh, a radical shift in the demand for different skill sets uh, to foster the, digi the digitization processes. Where do you see the role of the need for and the structure of management education um, as, as kind of a collaboration to, to the other skill sets that you mentioned? So I believe that mm, we have a rare transition happening right now. Not all generations get to live through a radical transformation. Most get to optimize current assumptions. And I believe that the biggest challenge for management, including young people like yourselves coming out in management, is that you need to radically challenge existing assumptions. Because otherwise what you are doing is you're cre creating incremental improvement. And if you see what happened to the music industry or you see what's happening to the other extreme in mining, these are not incrementals. These are pretty radical adjustments to business models. We have embraced a methodology called design thinking. I know, Carsten, you teach also in, in design. Design thinking is our way of trying to cope with the challenge of innovator's dilemma, that you are part of the problem yourself and only if you are able to think beyond your current assumptions, can you change the way you do things? And, and if you look at how we've been reinventing ourselves, a very, very successful company, normally companies don't reinvent themselves unless they're in a massive crisis. In our industry, an IBM that had to let go of 200,000 employees, can you imagine, and, and rethink their business to become now a services-oriented company or an Apple that almost went, went bankrupt? We shouldn't forget that. And only when they were almost bankrupt, they did the change. The question I have is, what are the management skills coming out of this school that enable radical change when you don't have to, when it's an opportunity-driven transformation that's radical and not a fear-driven transformation? You have the guts to do that more than anyone. That's what I would hope management education would do. No, I had one more um a lot of your core business has been around the ERP system over the past uh, you know, 40 years. Where do you see that as in, in the future as, as part of your core business? Do you see moving to different technologies? You mentioned you know, HANA. Um, what, with a lot of the multinational companies already having an ERP system in place um, and that kind of being saturated, do you, do you see that as moving moving ERPs to small and medium-sized businesses, or do you, do you see a shift? I see a radical shift, and uh, in many, many ways, what we've done the last three years is embracing that shift. We took a step back in 2010 when we got the 
uh, co-CEO Bill McDermott and myself in office, we often have an opportunity to take a step back when you have a change like that. We took that step back and said, what is, what is SAP? Successful company, market leader in ERP. We should be proud of the fact that we know how to solve business problems in 25 different industries. Uh, you guys should know that uh, there is a 73% uh, likelihood that if you drink a beer tonight, it's produced in an SAP system. So every time you have a beer, think of SAP. <laughs> uh, um, most planes in the air are maintained with SAP software, nuclear power plants, uh, utility systems, banks, uh, insurance companies. I mean, we touch probably 65% uh, of world transactions. But we also said, while that is very important, that's very relevant, it's not where the future is. And we made a radical bet on three hypotheses in 2010. We said the mobile device is a nice consumer toy, but it'll become the preferred way of interacting with business information and interacting for business people. We said cloud computing is the opportunity to simplify the consumption of complex systems so that you don't have to go out and implement at clients, but they consume the software directly. And with that radically accelerate the adoption of technology. And most, but probably most importantly, we said the disk is the slowest part of a computer. Let's get rid of it. The stone age didn't end because we ran out of stone, uh, but the disk age will not end either. Memory is 10,000 times faster. In a world of exploding information, probably the information created by humans will be doubled every 18 months. We cannot sit and wait for computer systems to come back with answers. We need the Twitter sentiment analysis immediately, so I know whether my new launch of a product is relevant. I need to know what will happen tomorrow, not report last quarter, uh, because otherwise I'm getting irrelevant in business. Those were the three technologies that we bet on. If you look at our company since then, 12 quarters of double-digit growth, and ERP is the smaller part of a, our portfolio today. It's a very important part, but it's the smaller part. Why is it important? Because companies still need to report in a com compliant way what's going on in the business, but that's not where they get their differentiation from. And with these new technologies, we move to the front line of business. We're empowering workers with information and mobile devices to take the decisions in front of clients. We're even reaching out to the consumers in new and very advanced ways. That's the transformation we went through, and it required a lot of rethinking of who we are and what is our role in this world. So ERP will still be there. It's just not going to be the biggest part of the value creation from a company like SAP. Yeah, I think we have Julie first, and then next to Julie, and then here third. Can you hear me? Yes. There we go. Julie Meyer, I run Ariadne Capital, which is a venture firm here in London. And um, I'm fascinated by SAP success because it does touch so many transactions. But it seems to me that we've moved the world today is driven by networks. And so it's not just about buying and selling. It's not about, you know, big is relative because actually every transaction is a multi-stakeholder transaction. Every industry or vertical is really moved to become an ecosystem. And so what we see, and the reason why some companies like Apple or Google 
are leading is because they're driving the economics of their ecosystem. And so they're determining which share in the transaction, who gets what share. That's what Jobs did in music and telecoms. And as a result, that's what's driving their amazing performance. Now, I understand SAP facilitated a lot of Apple's, you know, uh, the back end of that, but didn't take, actually, a share of the economics. It was not part of the, you know, the cut and so forth. So when does SAP move its business model to actually wanting a share of the economics in each of the transactions? Because that, that strikes me as explosive growth. Yes. if you can align yourself and also to be then a driver of the economics in these new digital ecosystems. I think that is a, an extremely important point. Where is this world going? I think the value of the network has shown uh, to be there. Um, as often, uh, these trends start in the consumer world and then you think about what can I do in a business context. The mobile device was a consumer device. I was the second CEO to demo an iPad on stage three weeks after Steve Jobs did it, but I showed it with business software. And my conversation with Steve Jobs afterward was, what are you doing with my consumer device? And I said, this is not a consumer device. This is an opportunity to interact with people in business. So your network effect, Facebook showed the value of connecting people. Now I will claim and I don't want to sound old-fashioned, that the world is not getting more productive because I know that my friend from high school is having a coffee in Oslo. That's the value I get from Facebook. And yet, the network has a tremendous value, a billion people connected. So we said, what if we could do that in business, like you said? And I believe that that's where the next wave of innovation will come. It's the connection between business people and business people and between businesses and businesses. Not in linear, but in many-to-many relationships. And what did we do? We went out and acquired Ariba, the biggest business network in the world. The Ariba network connects almost a billion uh, companies. Um, uh, sorry, on, almost a, a million companies. 800,000 companies, last time I counted, are connected to this network. If you connect your company to the network, you are automatically connected to the 800,000 other companies that are connected to that network. And the business model there is what you asked for. We get a share of the transactions. This network has a transactional volume today of 320 billion US dollars annually. We get a share of that. On top of that, it is the best early indicator I have whether the economy is Improving or not? Because I see the amount of transactions that are happening between companies globally. So we are in that model in a big way today. By the way, it's a gravity business model. So you have to be the biggest and then you get more gravity and then you get more. There can only be one eBay kind of approach. There can only be one Facebook kind of approach. There can only be one YouTube kind of approach. But now for business. And we think the next way will be the people-to-people -people interaction. Think of it as the Facebook for the enterprise, just not with, I'm having a cup of coffee, but how do I get my 50 people to work on the project to innovate for Procter & Gamble or to buy a company where we're sharing information in new ways, which is not email, because it's one of the most inefficient ways of keeping a team up to date on what's going on. That is the network effect. The implications of this is a new business model for SAP. But I also believe complete 
deterioration of traditional hierarchical management structures as a consequence, and we need to be ready to lead in a networked economy. Hi, my name is uh, Danny D. Um, my question is, to what extent Africa is affected by this um, rapid digitization or digital revolution? And don't you think there is a um, relationship between uh, democratization and this digital revolution? How can we overcome? Because most African countries are not yet democratized. They limit uh, internet access, Facebook, um, <coughs> to it, all these um, social uh, medias. Uh, can you quantify um, what are the potential, for example, if I want to go to this uh, field, um, how big is the, the potential in the whole continent of Africa? Thank you. I believe that the implications of the digitization is that everyone is connected and everyone has a voice that's equally strong. So if you have something relevant to say, there are listeners in an extent that you've never had before. And the riots in, in, in North Africa was an extremely perfect example of how uh, connecting people uh, without a leader uh, could cause a network to coordinate activities. I believe that the implications is in business a very strong empowerment of individuals a huge contribution from individuals, but also a much bigger responsibility. And I think the same will happen in society. <laughs> now, you are mentioning some countries where they are limiting the availability of this technology. My experience is that the mobile technology is very hard to limit. And you see some of these countries actually leapfrogging a generation of technology directly into mobility. For me, that is the biggest democratic movement <laughs> in the world the access to the mobile device to anything that happens in the world. It is also the infrastructure that helps small companies connect to customers everywhere through the Ariba network that we acquired or directly in other ways. So yes, I agree with you. And I do not think fundamentally that you can stop a technological wave like this, even with the biggest attempts um, from political side. It's impossible. So I feel good about that on one side. I also believe it's a huge responsibility that we all carry because our voices are heard in a very different way. And we carry, and I, I believe in self-regulating systems. That's the only means to do that. You need some frameworks, like in cloud computing, you need frameworks, you need security levels, not at consumer levels, at enterprise levels. And then you need self-regulation, a little bit like the buying and selling feedback that you get on eBay. You need self-regulating systems, otherwise you cannot control. The, the speed of innovation in the digital world is so fast that it can only be done if you find mechanisms for self-regulation. So I'm not so worried about the lack of democratization. I think this will have a, a, a radical Im impact, and uh, I think it's good, but it requires responsibility. Yeah, it's here, and then it's Dave afterwards. Yeah. Okay, David, I'm from 5 million so, uh, David from a five million company, but uh, from Purwan, from Georgia. And for three years, I worked as a core developer in a small local company developing an ERP software. So, 
a competitor of SAP, and they're still a competitor in the local market. And I just, you just mentioned there that you are, have some strategy of uh, using the small companies to make innovations, to drive innovations. And could you talk a little bit more about it? How, how are you going to do that? And what are the, uh, the, the actual strategies of that? Thank you. Yes, so thank you very much. Um, I, we're doing that by opening our technology and allowing small companies like the one you work for to build on top of what we have and enhance what we have. The implication is, of course, that you are not necessarily competing with the core of what we do. But how many ways can you do an accounting system? Where is the big value creation in making yet another way of doing debits and credits? What if you could take it to the next level of saying, I manage the cash on top, I, I, I help you price your products differently, I help you reach new markets. So my assumption is that with technology platforms, there's an opportunity for a win-win. I open my technology. You can compete with me as well. And on top of that, you create enormous value by not trying to do the same again, which I think has little value, but build on top extend. That's my vision, and that's what we do. We do that with our ERP system. So we have a cloud-based system called Business by Design. It's an open architecture, and anyone can enhance it. We do it with HANA, which is a breakthrough technology in real-time computing. You can build on top of HANA at 99 cents per hour on Amazon. That's how available we make it. And we have a mobile platform, so you can build enterprise apps on top of our technology. And with that, you get access to some of the most prestigious companies in the world who already run our software. Instead of trying to replace what they have, enhance it, you get a huge market. It's, it's actually one of the arguments been made uh, recently against Apple's own apps is that it would, com it would be much more innovative if it didn't offer its own apps on its own ecosystem, that it should stick to offering the ecosystem. And its own apps is actually hindering, hindering innovation. So I think, um, watch this space. Yeah, Dave Gibson? Shout. You don't want to be on, on the web, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, Dave Gibson. I run uh, change management at Cisco for uh, Europe, Middle East, Africa, and Russia. Um, and it, I, I, my question is not a question. My question is to see, um, to have two Danes on the stage who have what I think to be opposite views about one thing. Uh, we're both, we both work for technology companies, and we both preach that if people actually use the technology well, you'll see an increase in productivity. Karsten's argument, and here's where I pit two Danes in a, uh, on, a, uh, on a stage together, and we're going to see the most polite argument in the world. Watch this. Um, coming from a perspective where you have three different types of workers. One's transformational, like a plumber, and then you, you have sort of our types of, of knowledge workers. He believes, and there's one in the middle, and I forget which one it is. He believes that the first two levels of workers, you can't squeeze any more productivity. But you're on stage. I'm on stage thinking to myself, yes, we can. You use our technology, use our technology well, and we implement it well, and it works then you'll see a productivity increase. Karsten, 
tell the CEO, co-CEO of SAP, why don't you think we can get any more productivity at two levels? Well, I mean, so the, so the point is, uh, yes, it may be possible if, if the third kind, namely the ones who do innovation work, that they do their work. And I think in that sense, there isn't any disagreement. All I'm saying is, if all we do is to try and look at how can we squeeze more productivity out of uh, an, a supply chain, uh, it doesn't matter which one. If you just look at it as an existing supply chain, then it's very difficult. You know, the, the global organizations with the help of SAP and others, they have been quite good at making these funnels almost empty most of the time. It's just that come spurts of products that when customers want them. But, but the point is, of course, the argument I hear Jim make is, of course, that if you completely innovate <clears throat> the foundations for which that, that defines this supply chain, then obviously that in itself can be innovated. For example, by cutting, by replacing one middleman with another or one middle institution with another. But it's clear to me that we, we are not going to be we're not going to be able to innovate more jobs out by being better at doing plumbing. We're not going to be immediately able to do the better by having better call center workers who work slightly harder. No, the way to do it is to get rid of call center workers. Yeah. That's how it works. The future is not to have call centers. It's already a broken system. But um, so so if we want to grow uh, grow uh, labor here in our own uh, region, we need to focus on in, in, uh, on work that innovate, and I'm not the only one saying that, and I, I don't think we disagree. I, I give you one example. In construction, the construction industry, while very important to many jobs, is one of the most inefficient industries there is. Um, we work with a company like Hilti, and they claim that two out of three holes drilled with a Hilti or any other device is drilled in the long, wrong location or in the wrong size. <laughs> that, in my lean world, is waste. So what did they do? They said, what an opportunity to increase productivity in construction. And they're creating digital products in their devices. So they're trying to change their business model from I'll sell you the device to I'll drill you the hole. I'll drill you the right hole in the right location with the right size at the right time. <coughs> the way they do that is they put a, a thing in the room that is now a new construct or an existing construct that is connected to the digital drawings of that room, and it will beam with laser location and size of the holes that are needed in that room. And with that, they change the productivity in an industry. They change their business model, and their value add is accuracy, not power of the device. It is one example where it's not about how do I get you know, the guy to drill twice as many wrong holes faster. <laughs> but completely rethinking the model. That's where the productivity comes from. That's my argument, or the mining example. It's not about getting an even bigger truck for the guy to drive. It's about rethinking the model. There is no driver, and the value add happens in the data center. Okay, so we have two questions here, and then we have two questions over there afterwards. You first, sir. Yes. I think we want the mic. Uh, yeah, um, very good submission. Thank you. Very enjoyable. Um, there are a number of things I would have asked, but I mean, I'm trying to uh, take it down to one or two. I could have sort of questioned about the middle stands in Germany as a, a unique model. Um, I could equally have said that uh, the uh, 
the Chinese model won't necessarily survive too much longer mm -hmm. if it can't make the leap. Even if it makes the leap, then it's even going to be more dangerous to the right? But I'll, I'll, I'll stick with the one that you presented um, when you talked about innovation coming from the bottom. Um, yes, I agree with you. Um, big, there's a big question mark about that. When you're talking about productivity, the increase in productivity, if by that we end up with what we've got now where we've got something like a little over three quarters of all monies that are generated in the world go to profit and dividends where in the normal um, historically it would have been 50-50 or near enough 50-50 yet the opportunity the savings to start that from the bottom up is very much uh, retrograde so what's your views on that? Well, I have, I mean, that's a, a, a long debate also about how wealth is distributed in the world. I'm thinking about how that it doesn't make the savings, and savings are the thing that gives this chance from the bottom. Yes. I, I, would, I would put it maybe in the, in the following way. There is clear, it's clear in my mind that through the economical opportunity and the, and the forces around economical opportunity, there is a great... Um, motivation for people to do things. So, so you need a, a and, and I think we've seen uh, attempts to, to plan things out is very hard. You need kind of put the frame and have enough incentive for people to do the right thing. That, that's one thing. I believe, by the way, that's a way to solve the sustainability challenge as well. Why are we taxing labor so much? Why don't we tax more the resource consumption? Is a is a way of rethinking models to try and incentivize people for the right thing. Secondly, I believe, and that was my point, that large institutions, of course, we create value. We are, you know, making five billion in, in profits at SAP. Uh, we have a very um, high margin type of business, um, but the large institutions cannot capture the long tail. Is my assumption. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. What I was thinking is, as much as the productivity in the company, like yourself, destroyed other jobs elsewhere, reasonably so, the ability for them then, or other ones to come up to the bottom from that destruction, is obviously um, is lessened by the fact that the distribution of the wages, right, so not allowed for the adequate savings, because it's only these youngsters here, they will even start a business when they leave here. If you go to the bank, what have you got to contribute? What's your savings? <coughs> this is quite normal. Sure, sure. We've all taught in, in rooms like this about economics of scale. I'm arguing a world where through the digitization we can deliver the long tail by massive innovation of the small. And there is no better opportunity than in a digital world to be a small company than have global impact. Look at the little Finnish company that created... Angry Birds. Anyone knows about Angry Birds? You've probably seen someone play it, right? Um, a little Finnish company. There is no other time in history that a little Finnish company like that within a year became world famous. That is only possible. No, but there's many, many of them. And I'm arguing if we don't embrace that as large companies, allow that, we also lose. That's what I'm arguing. Yes. Okay, yeah, we have in the front. 
I'm Sasha. I study maths with economics at LSE, so I'm completely pro-tech, love innovation. But one thing, when you were talking about the middleman, when you take him out, um, <laughs> when the plumber disappears and something else does its job, what happens to the plumber? Do you have a plan for the plumber or the miners or that middleman? Pimlico plumbers, they make, uh, they make over £100,000 a year. So join Pimlico plumbers. Be a good plumber. <laughs> Be the best one ever. I, I believe you have an extremely valid point because, of course, mathematically, you can calculate that there's you know, old skills and new skills. The problem is that often it's hard to move from the same individual to the new world. And we saw that. I mean, that's why I, I loved so much the Olympic story. When we were in the rural area, there was a, a new era coming up, the industrial. There was a massive skill change, and some were unable to do that. And we are in that phase right now. That's my argument. We're not taking it serious enough. I do believe that we can reskill, but of course not completely. I am of the opinion that the jobs of the future, there will be repetitive jobs, but the people that will have the repetitive jobs are the ones that constantly change them and improve them. So it's the creative part of repetitive job. And then there's the creative jobs. Those are the two main jobs. And we need, you have a, we have a problem that there is a, take Spain. Why is there a lot of unemployment in Spain? Well, a lot of that was because 10 years ago there was great construction opportunities in Spain and many people left the seat you're in right now in Spain and went out and earned a lot of money in constructing you know, houses for people at the coast. And all of that crashed with the financial uh, situation that we had in Europe, and these people are now uneducated and unemployed. And we do have an obligation to bring them with us into the digital world. The good news is that many young people have flair for digital. If I look at my kids, 13 and 14, you know, if I look at how my son is learning on YouTube, how to program advanced stuff, I, 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 this story is like I look in his physics book. Yeah? He's in the seventh grade. The physics book has the, you know, here's a lamp, here's a battery, and here's a switch. And I'm like, so do you find this interesting? He said, yeah, it's okay. The same day he's on Minecraft, building a digital calculator with redstone, which is the five years later in school. So he finds school massively boring. <laughs> and that's the good news, that there is actually a generation, I call it the Game Boy generation, that grew up with technology, that mastered this, and it's not so hard to teach them the new opportunity. But there is somewhere in the middle a generation that might be lost, and we, need, we have a big obligation. Yeah, first there, and then across the hallway. Yes. Hi, uh, Laurent Chauvet, I'm a consultant. Well, uh, I'd like to thank you for your talk. It was a very good talk. It was a very good speech. Yeah, I'd like to th thank you for your talk. It was a very good talk. It was a very good speech, actually. Um, now, um, I, I have a few, few issues, and uh, you said that you did not uh, you, you welcome challenges, so I will, will pass on a few issues like the crash of the internet bubble in the year 2000, whatever. Um, issues with privacy, hacking, and lots of other problems. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, uh, so I'll, I'll pass rapidly uh, on a number of issues, like, for example, the crash on the Internet bubble in the year 2000, a lot of issues related with privacy, hacking, and lots of other problems related like this. Uh, there are a couple of items which, uh, listening to your speech, I remember, I mean, in the 1980s, there was a company coming to our university, and uh, it was a company called IBM, actually. Mm -hmm. And they had a speech very similar to yours. And some people stand up and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Uh, we are using two accountants. We are putting informatics in our company. And we are introducing a new accounting system. So we will make two accountants redundant, and we will have an IT person looking after the whatever the, the software. So actually, we are not really creating jobs. We are just maybe displacing some jobs from one place to another, assuming there's a reskill. You can reskill the existing trader. So essentially, it's not creating anything. It's just displacing things, really. And uh, this is a, uh, an issue which uh, I mean, I'd like you to address. But there is another which is even, which bothers me even more, you see. Uh, I've been working in, uh, info, uh, say, uh, information technology for quite a number of years. And I see many of people who are of my generation who by chance could not find jobs anymore. And I understand your issue about innovation. And I understand very well that you say you have good opportunities, create jobs and things like this, go for IT and so on. Well, however, first point is, well, if there is such a demand, why don't you train the people? Because you say there's a lot of people unemployed and want you train them. Why do you have to go to governments, universities, and so on to train them for you? And the reason is you try to externalize the education cost. You try to make someone else to pay for the education cost for the students. So you don't even have to bear the cost of training them or educating them. And the second problem is you have to say, well, yeah, okay, they'll find a job now when they're in their 20s or whatever. But uh, 20 years down the line, when their skills are now out of date, what will happen to these people? And I'm looking at your desk here. I don't see any, any job offers or anything down this. So could you please comment on sure. this also? Sure. Thank you very much. Now, first of all, let me try and um, avoid a misunderstanding. I am saying we as business leaders need to take a, an active role. I'm educating 100,000 people on my costs in Europe, unemployed people. That's what I'm doing. I'm not sitting around waiting for the education system to do this. I'm saying that there's a mismatch between what we educate and what we need. And that needs to be solved, but that takes 10 years. In the meantime, I'm stepping up to the plate using my technology, the areas where I know there's growth, and I am, at my costs, educating 100,000 unemployed people in Europe. So I'm not leaving it to someone else. First, first point. Now, this new era does mean that you are moving jobs, no doubt. My argument is that you're moving them from less value creation to more value creation. So that's good. And you can only do that if you enable uh, the opportunity for innovation, not just the big part of large companies' innovation, large R&D budgets and so on, but the long-tail enablement as well. And we have a unique opportunity today to do that, which we didn't have before. If you don't do that, the net loss of jobs will be bad. 
you have to create the new jobs. But I'm just telling you, with the technological advancements, it doesn't help to keep the two accountants. <laughs> I am arguing, also as a company, as a, as a CEO, if I could switch the two accountants with two software engineers that innovate, I create value for my company and my shareholders. And that's what I mean with the, with the opportunity to shift. We have to do it. It's, you can't avoid it. Now, this new era means new challenges. You're absolutely right. You know, when the horses were replaced by cars, there was a security problem because these were relatively big things that came driving at relatively high speeds and you had to create over years an improvement on security. If I look at the cars that I was driving in as a kid compared to the security of cars today, a massive innovation happened to, pro to handle that problem. The same is true in the cyberspace, in the digital world. We cannot have an internet for business where you can not tell who you are or even pretend you're someone else. That doesn't work if you use the connection for business purpose. If you use it for watching videos or sending, I'm having a coffee, it's fine. But if I'm dealing with the medical records of a person, the DNA information of a person, the bank account information of a person, the, uh, the, the, the recipe for a, um, a, a pharmaceutical, uh, you cannot have that in that level of security. We need an enterprise level of security. That's why an SAP is stepping in and others have to step in and make sure that that's where we go. But to stop it, you can't stop the car. You have to deal with it and solve it. Our biggest challenge in the digital world is one of privacy and one of security. Privacy because in that world, I know roughly how many people are in your home right now and what are they roughly doing. I know that from the smart meter information that I'm collecting. I know where you are. I know your preference in purchases. I know your financial situation. I know who you're interacting with. All of these things are digital. In the digital world there, we need to deal with that. Again, my answer is a self-regulated system where you as a consumer need to tell, do I want my insurance company to know that I'm a good driver or a bad driver? Because I promise you in that world, the insurance company will provide you a lower premium if they are allowed to take the data of GPS from your car and see how you're driving and that you are one of the nice drivers. But it's your choice. It's not the choice of the insurance company. And then it gets self-regulated. Yeah, so we have a gentleman in the pink shirt, and then we have Julia, and then we have a lady up front, and then, uh, then, then it goes all haywire. <laughs> Hi, Sam Appleby. Jim, you talked, you talked about small innovative companies adding value on top of like, large institutions' platforms. Um, a lot of people would argue that the power of huge companies often comes at the detriment, at the huge companies at the center of these ecosystems you're talking about, comes at the detriment of a large number of individuals, and that actually it's time for a shift in power from a few large companies to many, many smaller ones. Yes. But how then do you actually justify the utter dependence that the SMEs are talking about will have on the huge organizations like yourself as SAP? I believe that if you really want to fuel that idea of platforms and massive innovation on top, there will be a dependence. 
and you can't avoid that. If you don't want to be a dependent, then you build it yourself. You build your own EAP system, you build your own everything, and you take that challenge. It should be allowed. I'm just arguing there's a path that's maybe more successful in total. The dependence is there, and therefore you need to do it based on trusted relationships of companies that you believe are there and willing to share. And those that don't will probably be eliminated from the opportunity. If you feel they are too close, look at Apple and Android today. Android is actually winning the game. Why? Because it's more open. It's less control. And so there's a self-regulating mechanism even in that dependency. But there will be some. And it's not different to other parts of platforming that we've seen. There are standards in construction. If you're not following the standards, you cannot deliver the pieces. There are standards in automotive. There are standards in all industries. So there will be a dependency, no, no doubt. That's yep. the cost. Julia? Just to pick up on the self-regulating systems, which I completely agree, and I was struck just last night with a very good friend of mine who's Greek, and I was asking him what the status of Greek social life, entrepreneurial life, and so forth, and he says, never before has he seen such an explosion of startups. And I kind of drilled into that, and he said, well, it's been 20 years since Greece joined the EU, et cetera. And um, people understand now that the government really has no money. They have to rely on themselves. And I thought, what a happy place to get to, right? So I think that the, back to that structural change that you were talking about, horses to cars, what seems to me is that the social contract between the government, the individual, and business has shattered. And that there's a new one which is emerging. And, and I think it can only be, it's essentially a self-regulating mechanism. As, 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 and I think technology is driving that. Technology is not an industry, it's a layer which is empowering people. Mm-hmm. So therefore, if we, if we agree, could you imagine a future where Europe shifts dramatically towards the individual in a much more libertarian approach and we reduce government as a major actor in people's lives? Because really, what is it except an intermediary which takes our money and redistributes it, albeit in a very perhaps beneficial way? Some people would say it's very beneficial and other people wouldn't. But if technology is that layer which is driving prosperity and empowering individuals and self-regulating systems always then how can it be that we would not reduce the role of government in our lives and really free people through the use of technology? I think it's a, it's a very um, deep and relevant question, first of all. I do agree with many of your aspects, but I am also realistic enough to believe that the role of government is to set a framework that makes sense. And i give you one example in Europe. Cloud computing is the fastest growing category in our industry. It is a massive simplification for the customer and hence an opportunity to accelerate adoption of new technology. It is also a much better way to innovate because you innovate once for everyone, whereas if you're on the on-premise world, you need to go to every single customer and make them upgrade to get the new innovation. So it's, it's very, very efficient. Now, in Europe, we have rules and regulations by country. These are data protection laws, many of them written in the 50s and 60s, where cloud was something we used to describe a weather condition. And you're now applying that to a cloud computing infrastructure which doesn't even know the idea of a border between two countries. What does that do? 
it puts a burden in Europe, and particularly on small companies who have to deal with all these regulations in various different countries. We are big enough. We have 20,000 developers. I can throw the money at it. But it's an unfair disadvantage to the small. And it is an example of a political role to play to set a framework that makes sense. In this case, the harmonization of the rules in cloud computing in Europe. And you need some of that. Because self-regulating mechanisms may take too long to avoid disasters. And therefore, you need to set a bar, a framework. And I think that's the role of politicians. And we, as business leaders, need to help that process because often we have the experts that the political side needs in order to do that. And there are certain tasks in the world that will only be done centrally, and therefore there will be a tax system and there will be a distribution of, of money. Will there be a um, reduction of political influence? I certainly believe that right now there's an enormous fatigue on politics, even on business leaders. And therefore I'm arguing in a very strong way business leaders of today need to take a much stronger responsibility, not just for their own business, but for the impact they have in society, and those leaders will have a chance. I also believe that the political system, in particular in Europe, is challenged by, if you had a governance model like that, like you have in Europe, in a business, you would claim that this is not going to work. <laughs> if you take the financial system, for instance, in Europe, you basically had a set of rules with no ramification, no opportunity to penalize if not following the rules. And that, combined with the risk-taking of banks, banks, broke down the system. And so now you're beginning to install some governance elements in the financial system in Europe that if you don't have, the, the system will not work. So yes, I do believe there's a role for politicians. I do believe there needs to be a much closer interaction between uh, business, um, research, um, education, and government. And I think it can happen in networks where people take responsibility. Yeah, over there. And then uh, we are not only just in time, we are just in a bit before time. So we will finish 10 to 8 sharp. So that means any last questions, I'll take three in one row, and then Jim will answer those as quick as he can within the time allotted. Thank Here you go. Okay, so um, my name is Jujana Varga and I taught at the accounting department here. Um, now I'm at the University of Leicester. Um, so I'd like you to talk a little bit more about your strategy in financial services. Um, I'm interested in this relationship between accounting, marketing and sales, and the role of information systems. And um, I read somewhere that you're basically just entering the big banks as we speak. And so my first question is, what took so long? And the second is, um, you gave all of these compelling examples of how you also changed the business model in the process of you know, analyzing and cost and value relationships, um, which may be an answer to the first question. is like the provocative version is, were the banks afraid that you're going to be um, messing with the business model and where is it going now as you see it? 
for financial services an industry that I've been working with for now 12 years from an IT point of view. And it's one that's extremely fascinating uh, because it is fundamentally a technology and information product. You can send the banking product around the world in a couple of nanoseconds. And yet you haven't seen globalization really happening. It's very country-specific. You haven't seen massive outsourcing happen. You could move the payment to someone else that does it for you. All of these things that would be fundamentally possible have not been possible. And that's the lead into the answer to your first question. Why took it, Why did it take so long? Because it is massively complicated to run banking systems. And therefore, this, the decision was a very big one. We have spent more money in innovating banking-specific software than in the creation of our ERP product, which created the success of SAP. So that was a big decision. And secondly, even if we have this product, we've had it now for five years. The adoption of it is relatively slow. Why? Because every time you go to a bank, it's like a heart surgery. <laughs> so the, the amount of legacy technology that banks have is kind of preventing them from moving to the world where they need to go. Now, I believe truly that one of the reasons that the financial crisis happened was that we did not have real-time information technology that allowed the bank to understand the origination, for instance, of a, of, a, of a financial transaction. And with that came bundling and packaging that made it impossible to understand where the root of my risk is. Within memory computing, this HANA technology that we've invented, I had a very interesting conversation with a very large bank of a very large, uh, CIO of a very large bank. And I said, listen, within memory computing, with this new technology, we can read 600 billion transactions in 600 milliseconds. And he said, oh, that's interesting. Do you want a cup of coffee? And I knew I'm not getting through. So I said, actually, I think you could do real-time risk management. And then I never got coffee. And what I mean with that is that the real-timeness of banks you have a massive opportunity to radically change, and if the banks don't do that, the banking product goes to other industries. The payment will be a mobile device. The, um, the infrastructure of banks is legacy. They have to be replaced. Um, the banking... Inf I see large banks in Europe trying to get rid of the unprofitable customers. Well, at the same time, we're bringing banking to the unbanked in South Africa. How is that possible? It's technology that enables the zero cost of a marginal addition of a next banking customer. In, 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 in India, we're working on retail systems where the whole system, including everything, is 100 bucks. And every time you use the cashier, which is an iPad kind of thing, you get a microfinance of every euro you, you, you put in there you get a microfinance of a euro. Otherwise, they won't even use the device. These all technologies will radically change banking forever. And if banks don't take the lead, they will be eliminated in many of their current services. Now, why can they still survive that? Because they are supposed to be the trusted advisor, the company that you're willing to give your money, like the postal service is the trusted 
transportation company that you're willing to give the most precious confidential letter to. And therefore, I think there is a future, but it's a technology-driven future, and now we're in, in a big way. Um, it is the fastest-growing industry in our portfolio since three years. I am terribly sorry. I promised you something I couldn't keep, but my timekeeping up there on the wall is wrong. It is now 10 to 8, and we have another appointment, so I'm terribly sorry. You can write Jim an email. It's jim at sap.com, I assume. But <laughs> uh, before, we, before we finish, if you're more interested in these kind of issues, in particular on digital infrastructures, platforms, and ecosystems, then we made a small website called digitalinfrastructures.org. There are 10 YouTube videos uh, where we present our findings on these kind of issues. They're very funny. Uh, I'm not in all of them, uh, so they're even interesting. Uh, with that, I just want to really uh, thank all of you for showing up on a Thursday evening, and in particular to Jim. Thank you ever so much for a very interesting <laughs> presentation.